Barack has apparently broken the lightning network again. Yep, I had to update two different nodes in, you know, like urgent style, kind of do it quick. <laughs> it's just like, we need to get boosts, and he keeps on breaking the network. And I think the point he's making is that L&D is kind of a dumpster fire that we didn't quite realize because it's relying on BTCD, which is a basically unmaintained Bitcoin core implementation that is not in consensus with Bitcoin core in a couple different ways, including with certain taproot spends. And so we should probably get that out of the code base. And actually, I think the BTCD team, they graduated from BTCD to start their own altcoin, not to get judgmental, but maybe we need to move on from BTCD. Doesn't that tell you something? You know, in a way, it's kind of interesting to watch an adversarial market bang on a software product and make it get good real fast. Like they're having to iterate really quick because it was only a couple of weeks ago where we had a, another round of this. And both times, my buddy Brent's node got knocked offline. Same guy. But is it necessarily bad? I think the way, in my opinion, it's being done probably isn't the best, especially if some people are losing sats. That's That sucks. Um, at the same time, nothing makes a product better than people losing money and issues getting found in public. So in a sense, it's going to be so battle-tested after this that it, it may make the project better. Bitcoin gets better real fast because there are real bug bounties out there. Yeah, people are incentivized to move quick. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with... Hey, me, it's Chris, over here getting my Umbral box going again. Oof, oof. Now nah, I'm not going to talk about Umbral. I'm just going to quietly move to Nick's Bitcoin and then not <laughs> worry about this. <laughs> Today, we have a pretty light week. It's your typical bear market where everyone's talking about the same news, clutching their pearls about what the world's central banks are going to do, when pivot, etc. Honestly, Bitcoin doesn't care. I don't think we should either. We could maybe get into that. We'll talk a little bit more about how Barack broke the Lightning Network again and how the LN exploit team will help you steal funds from unpatched nodes or teach you how to do it if you want. And they don't think that's immoral because you're putting a lot of money at risk if you do that as well. I actually agree. Sure, go for it. Why not? Stronghold Digital is another publicly traded. Actually, are they publicly traded? I think they might be a private Bitcoin miner, but they're having cash flow problems and they're trading ASICs to NYDIG, the Bitcoin infrastructure and finance company for debt cancellation. There's a very silly video of their CEO wearing an outfit that looks like he borrowed it from the artist formerly known as Prince while standing on a abandoned in coal mine. Don't forget the diamond studded sunglasses. Gosh, I mean, it's like he thought, what is an outfit that will make the most people think I'm ridiculous and untrustworthy? I'll choose that. Yeah, you know, this picture on their page for like the different board members and CEOs and whatever, because he's a co-founder too or whatever. He looks a little better there. I wonder if he just dressed up for the video because he's, he's trying to sell to that Wolf of Wall Street type. Is that what he's trying to do? I think so. I mean, maybe I'm just a really vanilla guy. I think their whole approach was to try to, you know, make it look like they've got like some style or something. But the video is on their website if you guys want to know what we're talking about. Uh, but I love their team picture. The Their lead engineer really looks like a lead engineer, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. He checks out. Yeah. 
In economics, we will touch on Arthur Hayes' latest blog post about Hong Kong and China's dollar problem. Uh, dollar problems has been a theme recently for the show and the world. We might just have a detour to talk about the Bank of England and their recession forecast. It's not really Bitcoin related, but it's been in the news a lot and people might find it interesting. And frankly, I just don't think there's so much news this week. In Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech 224 with discussions about mempool consistency, the policy of Bitcoin Core on releasing controversial changes to consensus. Peter Willa talks about message identifiers, and we talk a little bit more about lightning routing failure situations. There is also a note in here about Rust Bitcoin, which we might reference later in an interview, hmm. perhaps. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's the show. And then we have some some boosts. So there's the show. There's Apparently, the show. it's not a show until you got the boosts. It is an important part. Well, you've teased us a few times with the whole lightning stuff. What the heck is going on? Why have all of us had to scramble and uh, upgrade our nodes now a couple of times in a row? Dang it. Well, the first problem came from a very large taproot multisig. And it seems that BTCD, which is the component sort of under LND, Lightning Network Daemon, the most popular Bitcoin node because it comes prepackaged in most node in a box options, they had not updated to take take into account various changes that Taproot brought to Bitcoin. And that means that a large Taproot multisig seemed to be too large under old consensus rules and was, you know, flagged as an invalid transaction. And that had the effect of forking the BTCD node off of the Bitcoin main chain. So a block was confirmed with this transaction. This node thought the transaction was invalid. So it thought that the, the block was invalid. And if now the main chain starts building on that block, BTCD can't see the main chain anymore because all it saw was a bad block and then no more blocks, if that makes sense. Okay. So for that software, the chain ends the block before the block with the invalid transaction. And then suddenly it's like, well, where are the blocks that build on the last valid block? I don't see them. That was the first issue. And that was fixed by a hotfix. But now we have another issue again with BTCD. Do you want to maybe break this down for the listeners? Because I haven't read the GitHub report. So my real rough layman's understanding is they are having fun with Taproot. In fact, when you read the author's original post about this. He even talks about how he didn't get Taproot very much, didn't really understand it beyond the surface level, then had an opportunity to really deep dive. And it seems like that's where a lot of the chaos has ensued from. And so it's a transaction that is really large, too large for the system to handle, causes a crash. I think it's what happened to my buddy Brent's node. Is I think it caused his to crash. It went offline. Or I don't know exactly why it goes down, but the nodes that process this go down. There's a message in the transaction that says, you'll run CLN and you'll be happy, which is a reference to you'll own nothing and be happy, I suspect. It also seems that some versions of electors were also impacted. So if you have the elector service, and I don't think they're done, there's kind of been a lot of boasting about this on Twitter. I, I think there's going to be more to come. Well, I have seen the writing on the wall, and I think it's time to run at least two different types of nodes because we've got two serious L&D outages in a short period of time, and I think it's time to diversify. Two hours on Twitter, he writes, Brock, I love breaking 
things. I broke LND for fun, and I will break it again if I can. I'm not sponsored by Blockstream. <laughs> I'm in favor of multiple implementations. Op return was for trolling. Well, I'm hoping to talk to him because he seems like an interesting guy. Frankly, I kind of think it's okay to smear a little egg on Lightning Labs' face because I know that there is a feeling that they have been attempting to sort of take control of development on Lightning. They have a bolt in the works that Rusty Russell thinks really tilts the table in the favor of L&D. Right now, it seems like their engineering is maybe a little suspect. Why are they relying on a basically abandoned node project as their Bitcoin backend? That's weird. Why is that the case? Not super clear. As may come up, because I had an interview with an RGB developer, Lightning Labs Tarot seems to be, from some perspectives, a step backwards from what RGB has developed. I was surprised to hear that. And it sort of seems to be a typical story of a company that has some venture capital backing, trying to leverage that backing into being a market leader. And they might not necessarily have the right product or the best product, but they're going to push it. And maybe we have to question that. It's also given me the sense that I should remember that some of this is still new and that we will discover bugs. And part of being an early adopter is helping to work out some of these issues. I don't, I, you know, I hate getting a message saying, hey, it looks like, you know, the node's down. Do you know what's wrong? What? What do you mean the node's down? And then, you know, you sit down and you discover, oh, geez, what's been going on? Oh, gosh, got to go fix this. And it, it does make it feel a little, little early days still. But I think it's in some ways, this is a great time to be working this stuff out. The Lightning Network has been a slow, slow roll, and it's really picked up size and momentum. It's really got actual value on it now. This is the period of time where it's going to become a target. But it's a good thing to get worked out now before it's become like some sort of system that's the size of Visa or MasterCard. And it's, you know, essential for daily transactions. That's a really good point because I think that Bitcoin and Lightning are so useful that it's easy to miss the fact that they're still highly experimental. And even though we've spent a lot of time researching alternatives, let's say, to the traditional financial system and the dollar and even to Bitcoin, with the conclusion that Bitcoin is probably the only viable alternative to our fiat hierarchy and the political consensus and constraints that comes with that, it doesn't mean that Bitcoin is a sure thing. It only means it's the only viable alternative. And we have to be humble and ready to deal with disruptions and attacks and disappointments like this and make sure that we're ready to update our software and adjust our exposure to these technologies if it turns out that, say, your node going down and a channel being attacked would be a serious financial hardship. I think that maybe that channel was too big. You know, you need you should probably take some balance on chain and uh, reduce your exposure to lightning a little potentially. And I think the other longer term effect this will probably have is it will give encouragement to the community to diversify the implementations of the lightning daemon and the back end. And uh, maybe this will be a, the catalyst to some more diversification there. And also just a shout out to the LN Sploit team. The article we linked to is an incredible guide to using their tool to exploit lightning channels. In terms of technical documentation, that's one of the best I've seen. So kudos for writing it down. Good job. Yeah, which also means there are tools out there to take advantage of this. So if you're lazy and don't update your node, I, you know, there's more and more people that this is available to. It's becoming more and more accessible to exploit this type of stuff. So patch. Bad people will definitely use this tool. Definitely.
Now, were you aware of Stronghold Digital? Had you heard about them before they showed up in the news recently? A few months ago. So um, maybe at most 10 months ago, I found out about them. They're kind of an interesting pitch, right? The uh, Their cell was, is they, they show up at an old coal mine that uh, was active for many, many years. And um, they reprocess what's left over that would just sort of leach into the water supply over time. And through their magical high-tech process, they essentially make it much more environmentally friendly and they produce steam as a byproduct, which they use to spin a turbine, which then they use to mine Bitcoin, which is ultimately, I suppose, where they get some of the profit. So they're kind of an environmental play, kind of an energy generation play, and also a Bitcoin mining play. Yeah, I saw Stronghold first because there was a note in probably a New York Times article about Bitcoin mining incentivizing coal burning. And I thought, that's weird. And I did some research. And what Stronghold is doing is they're taking waste coal. So there are slag heaps Mm -hmm. and abandoned coal mines heavily concentrated in the state of Pennsylvania. And when it rains or water flows through them, they leach out toxic heavy metals into the environment. And so rivers around there run orange. The cancer rates of people who live in that area are really off the chart. And Pennsylvania has been trying to get federal money to clean up these sites for a long time, because the reason that this coal wasn't fully dug out and burned in the 19th century when these mines were active, or or some of them were active in the 20th century too, was because there's a lot of coal that's not economically viable. Like there's too much junk mixed in with it. And so it's not really economic to burn it. It's just garbage and there's no real good solution to it. So Stronghold Digital actually burns it and they burn it at a loss. And so they need to be subsidized as basically a environmental cleanup company. So they need some kind of state subsidy, but they don't need as much as other companies because they're actually monetizing it a little. And so from a certain perspective, you could say, well, this is a disaster. They're burning more coal. They're creating more atmospheric carbon. And sure, that's bad from a global perspective. But from a local Pennsylvania perspective, I think people are pretty happy because they're reducing local environmental pollution and local water pollution. And Bitcoin mining is a way that they make this process more economical and more scalable. But what's happened to them is they were using a bunch of Bitcoin miners as collateral on a $67 million loan, and they couldn't pay it back, I think mainly because of the change in Bitcoin price. And so they've actually transferred around 27,000 of these miners to NYDIG, who was the provider of this very large loan. Yeah, they gave back quite a bit. They would argue that their process does make the byproduct of the coal burning cleaner than if you were to just burn the coal traditionally. So there's that going for them, I suppose. So they had 26,200 miners. That's incredible. But they needed to do something, either make a lot more money or return them. And by returning them, they extinguished $67.4 million in debt, which is really quite impressive. They've also been working on restructuring some of their other debt. So they're actually going to walk away with better payments and $21 million in cash they can add to their balance sheet. So they say currently they have about $30 million in liquidity and $29 million of that is in unrestricted cash and Bitcoin. But here's the thing they're doing And this is why they're giving back the miners. They're converting to a power plant. They're shutting down the Bitcoin mining and they're going to sell the power directly because it's more profitable than mining Bitcoin for them right now. And that was the Bitcoin mining power generation thesis the whole time. The point was that Bitcoin mining would help incentivize developing power resources. And then when demand went up, when the ability to send that power to the grid was there, the mining would shut off and the grid would get cheaper energy. So looks like it worked. 
worked in this case. Yeah, I suppose so, right? And um, the interview I watched with the CEO from a couple days ago sounds like they think eventually they'll just buy some rigs back when it, you know that makes more sense and start mining again. I guess it makes sense. I think they're going to survive. They seem like a pretty slick company. You know, if you watch their video, it's pretty well produced. Their website's all right. They really know how to talk the talk and walk the walk for the ESG stuff, clearly. I can't really evaluate their ESG claims about how much better burning waste coal is using their process versus letting it sit in the ground and poison the local area. But it seems interesting and it's kind of a amusing sort of counter argument to assumptions around what's good for the environment because maybe there is a, a metric where you could say some coal is better to be burned than to leave lying around. And that's very different than the consensus view, which is coal is so filthy and we need to leave it all in the ground. You're right. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, and they make a good case for it, including some of the areas that they reclaim after they've removed the coal. They have one where they built like a soccer field and whatnot. That's obviously their showcase. Their number one thing is just the AMD issue, which is acid mine drainage, which is the largest source, like you were mentioning, of water pollution. But the other thing is, is I guess with the right kind of wind, they can actually combust these piles of this coal refuse that they have. So they have this whole pitch of they come in, they clean up the area, they try to do what they call a low emissions burn. They have on their website... In the environmental impact section, they claim they remove 90% of the NOx emissions, 99 of particulate emissions, 99 of mercury emissions, and 98% of SO2 emissions. So you just get the carbon, essentially. I imagine. And then, of course, they also produce steam with it. But the other, then, of course, the, the last thing they do is then they, they take the land and they plant something or they build a, a, a soccer field. And so they've they just got the whole story. It's pretty impressive. If it was a bull market still, I think they'd probably be doing better. You know, they, I think they have a pretty solid idea here, perhaps. Or it's all just really good show. Time will tell. Yeah, hard to tell from a distance. So a theme that has showed up on the show a lot in recent weeks has been talking about the euro dollar system. And that's this view that the US dollar is the financial oil of the world. And the world is this big financial machine. It's running on dollars. Dollars are everywhere. They're being created when foreign banks and financial institutions create loans. They're being destroyed when those loans are paid back. And so the Federal Reserve is is actually like the appendix to this system, not the heart. And so all of this Fed watching, all of this concern about when is the Fed going to cut rates, it really misses the point about what's really happening in the world because it's about this wider, international, broader euro dollar system that the Fed has no control or visibility over. And I think that that's a pretty satisfying analysis. The problem is getting real data because there's no way to observe this euro dollar system because all of these offshore dollars, in fact, all dollars are created on the balance sheets of private and public companies. And there's no way to see this data. We can see it a little bit, snapshots of it in the past when we look at the public accounts of public companies that have to publish them periodically. But it's really very opaque. And I think the Federal Reserve has sort of given up on trying to understand the global dollar system. And instead, what they do is they attempt to control our emotions through saying positive things when they want us to be bullish on asset markets and saying negative things when they want the world to be bearish on asset markets. And I feel like that's something that's happened recently. But what about China? Because China is obviously a big deal in the world. It has nearly $1 trillion of dollars in the People's Bank of China foreign exchange account, which of course is not a single account. It's probably accounts with 
many international banks and counterparties around the world. But China has always had a dollar problem. What I mean is, when China joined the WTO and started running a massive trade surplus, which means that basically China sent a lot of goods to the world and they needed to receive something in return, and they were receiving dollars because the euro dollar system is the highway of international trade, and that's what they got. They started to accumulate large numbers of U.S. dollars, and I remember when I was a younger man hearing a lot of American politicians and business leaders complaining about China and talking about how China was keeping their currency too cheap and stealing American jobs, and it was this terrible thing. And at that time, I actually dug into the data and I came to a completely different conclusion. And my conclusion, which I think might have been wrong, I don't know, who cares at this point, was that actually the U.S. dollar was too cheap, and this made all other currencies expensive by comparison. And they sort of had to devalue to sort of keep pace with the inflating U.S. dollar. That was my analysis, at least. And I don't know if that was correct because I was just looking at very simple monetary aggregates that aren't very accurate. But it it got me looking at the Chinese dollar situation, and it led to my interest in economics and that you know essentially Bitcoin as well. So I guess it was an important you know event for me. But today China also has dollar problems because China is in the midst of a economic and political transformation, moving from a more market-oriented economy back to a centralized, planned economy under Xi Jinping. The restriction of human movement is very controlled in China today. Recently, Foxconn employees were escaping from their factory because they were afraid they were going to be locked inside due to a COVID lockdown. Shanghai Disneyland was locked down, and people who had gone for a day at Disneyland discovered that they were now locked in Disneyland for weeks, if not a month. Yikes. This has led to a lot of turmoil in Chinese financial markets, and the dollar is a big part of their financial markets. So why does Arthur Hayes care? Well, it's because he thinks that Hong Kong is getting ready to be pro-crypto again. And he thinks that at the core of this, this is China trying to solve a dollar problem. Mike Trump. So the theory is, is that ultimately they have to embrace the Bitcoin once again because they got a problem they need to solve and they don't want to participate in the dollar system. Well, more like they have to participate. The issue is that they have a large number of dollars both in Sure. In their official reserve, but also uh, citizens uh, hold dollars and citizens want to get dollars and get out of the renminbi. The argument that Arthur makes is that Hong Kong is the financial center of China. And it's a place where Chinese people can exchange renminbi and dollars for other things. And by stimulating financial activity in Hong Kong and allowing crypto into that mix, it creates a basically a financial market that China can use to either sell dollars and buy their own currency. The simple story is that if they want to manage their currency value, the the value of the Chinese yuan against the dollar, they actually need a market where Chinese yuan are being sold so that the, the PBOC can buy them and dollars are being bought so that the PBOC can sell dollars because they own a lot of dollars. Well, that can't happen inside mainland China because they've locked down financial markets to prevent that from happening. 
thing because they want to control their currency. So they need a place where they have some sort of control where they can create a semi-open market. And Hong Kong is that place. And by allowing crypto trading, a huge amount of Chinese yuan wants to buy crypto. I, I wish I could say Bitcoin, but frankly, mm. they seem to buy a lot of altcoins. And the, the way that you buy Bitcoin or crypto in Hong Kong is you sell Chinese yuan, you buy USD, you sell USD, and then you buy Bitcoin. Right, okay. The PBOC, what do they do? They buy Chinese yuan and they sell USD. So you can see that there are at least one point in that crypto trade where the PBOC can get liquidity to do their open market operations to manage their currency, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay, I follow. I don't know. And I think he might be reading the tea leaves here. Arthur is still under house arrest, I think. So this might be an overactive imagination, but it's an interesting model. And I would say that this is one of his less crazy articles lately. It's kind of very specific. He doesn't uh, tell a story about King Arthur or anything. It, it's pretty close to the facts. Yeah, that's nice to see, actually. When the link first showed up on the dock, I thought, oh, God, I'm going to give this a try again. Because I do have a hard time reading his articles, but I agree. This is probably probably the least thick. It's, it's long. There's a lot of information information. There's good context and good history, but it's not like a story. It's not, you know, kind of a make-believe story that he's throwing in there. So should we take a digression about the Bank of England or or that sort of economic crisis? Did you want to talk about that a little? I think it's kind of interesting, isn't it? So uh, we're recording today. It's a Thursday. I believe it was today or yesterday. The Bank of England came out and said they expect the UK to fall into their longest recession ever, at least since they've begun keeping track. Now, those records go back to the 20s. So they say this is going to be the longest recession since the 20s. And they believe that there's going to be a very challenging, that's a direct quote, two-year slump with unemployment nearly doubling by 2025. Right now, unemployment's actually pretty low over there, like it has been here. That's been a common phenomenon. But it's expected to rise to at least 6.5%. And whenever you take something and you double it like that, that's going, there's going to be second-order effects. So that, they believe, will last into 2025. The recession is going to at least last until the first half of 2024 they say. They're also, they've raised rates to the highest level they've been in 30 years. It's It sounds like a worse version of what's going on over here. I think that makes sense because in our model, the U.S. is the core of the global financial system. And what happens in the U.S. or in our financial markets seems to kind of echo around the world and maybe amplify. So around the edges, we have the Egyptian pound falling apart and Sri Lanka having a financial crisis and completely falling apart. So Frank Frankly, I think that England is more similar to Sri Lanka than the U.S., spicy take, because it's a relatively small country with limited resources that imports a lot of food and energy. Sounds like Sri Lanka so far. The difference is that England used to be a global power. It used to have the world's reserve currency. And I think that the English haven't quite accepted their fall from grace. I think that Brexit was in some way a romantic attempt to recapture the independence and power of their imperial period. But as it's demonstrated, I don't think that was the case. I think that they're somewhat small and irrelevant cool. now. <laughs> you know, and they're going to try to be exciting to innovation by maybe loosening their crypto regulation or something and trying to attract all the altcoiners to go and mm. do projects there like Singapore did. Yeah. But if you're competing with Singapore, you're already in trouble because Singapore has relatively low wages. I think they're at the lower end of the developed world. So, you know, it's kind of a race to the bottom, in my opinion. Mm. 
Yeah. I find it really fascinating. I, I probably mentioned to you, Chris, that I used to live in London and it's a really cool place. You should, should definitely check it out. As Americans who go to London, I, I think that the overwhelming feeling you have is one of claustrophobia. Like you cannot believe how small this country is compared to how ginormous the United States is. Yeah, we got a lot of open, empty land over here. This is not <laughs> the case in in England. <laughs> But I think another interesting aspect to the Bank of England's forecast is what happened with their mini budget crisis when their government debt yields spiked and basically the market threw up and said, you know, England, if you're going to be spending money like crazy, we'll pass. We don't really need your debt. We don't really need your pound. We'll just go somewhere else to the dollar, likely. And what that made them confront is the fact that they're very fiscally constrained as a government, as unemployment goes up, they have to cut government services to pay unemployment claims, or they have to cut unemployment claims. They're in a scarcity situation. And the U.S. is still not there. The U.S. will still deficit spend like crazy. No one has talked about cutting U.S. government spending yet. So, you know, maybe that's the signal to watch for, to know that the crisis has really gotten bad when the U.S. government starts cutting spending. <laughs> kind of on the point of inflation, which is, it sort of feels like the elephant in the room of all of this, both Chris Christine Lagarde, uh, during an interview, uh, said that inflation came from nowhere. It's a problem across all of the West. Biden has said that recently. Well, look, it's not a U.S. problem. It's a problem that the whole world's facing. What is your answer when some, because I've had people ask me, why is there so much inflation? Why are so many of the nations experiencing inflation at, at once? It does seem like a worldwide problem. Everyone's experiencing inflation, which isn't true. Not every nation is, I realize, but that is the sentiment. It is interesting because it seemed like there was no inflation and we'd never have any inflation and then suddenly we had so much inflation. Yes, and it's all of the West and other places as well, but definitely, definitely on the West side. It's just all of us, all of a sudden, bam. And, it, and the only thing that I think people can really point to is, well, COVID happened. I guess I dispute the framing of the question because there was inflation before COVID, but we called it asset price inflation. And it was Apple stock increasing 1,300% or something in five years or whatever the number was. And it was the price of real estate shooting up, which then shot up more during COVID. And I think that we've had a monetary and fiscal policy in the United States, which was echoed around the world, that encouraged the inflating price of financial assets. Financial assets weren't getting better. They were, there was no technology that was improving them. Instead, there was a certain math around interest rates and inflation and the liquidity going into financial assets and the way that government subsidies move through the financial system. And that made financial assets pop. And some of that money was redirected during COVID into stimulus checks. And that caused a similar sort of pop in demand, but not for financial assets this time, though financial assets did also eventually surge, but for real goods and services too. And the argument that no one could have seen this coming, I think that's what Christine Lagarde has to say. At the same time, it's preposterous. Everyone knew this was coming. Everyone knew that if supply was constrained and you supported demand, there would be price appreciation. I think that the real argument is around inflation because some people like to say supply chain problems have caused price increases and these price increases are not due to monetary inflation, which is the quantity of money increasing, but the amount of prices staying the same. I would say, I think that's a, a little bit of a semantic argument. You could say that there's massive deflation because asset prices 
have fallen a lot and these assets have a financial monetary characteristic and therefore there's massive financial deflation just because asset prices are falling. And and therefore, in the context of all of this financial deflation, the price increases on food and energy are actually due to constrained supply and not monetary inflation. And I think that's a little bit missing the point because at the end of the day, because demand for products was supported by government policies that gave people money so they could consume more than they would have been able to otherwise. And I'm not criticizing that. I mean, unemployment payments are not a lot of money. Losing your job and having to survive on that is going to be tough, but it's better than people becoming homeless because when people fall off of the sort of middle path of employment and really start having a crisis, they they tend to fall all the way to the bottom. You know, that's really terrible and it's very costly for individuals in society. So I'm not saying that unemployment or guardrails in society are a bad idea. It seems to be a very good idea, actually, but they do support demand and supply is constrained. So, you know, prices are going to go up. Is that inflation? There are also analyses of price increases that point to these increases being mainly correlated with increases in corporate profitability. You know, this is the argument that we don't have inflation, we have corporate price gouging. Is that the case? Well, yes, actually, I think it is the case in some markets, because what many Americans are discovering is that the United States, at least, does not have super competitive markets for many goods and services. In fact, the U.S. is in many ways a series of isolated monopolies around energy, around internet access. Just just list the industry and you will discover that in the United States, there is a national company that dominates that industry and controls a huge portion of it. And that's because the United States has legalized corruption in the form of lobbying so that as a company gets larger, it can lobby more for more favorable treatment to get larger. So I don't mean to digress, but you can see how, in a sense, because COVID sparked a crisis, everything that was wrong with the last 40 years of government, economic, and monetary policy suddenly broke and became apparent in many ways. Right. All those checks they were writing came due. As right. You know, it, it doesn't rain, it pours. So all of those yeah. bad decisions that were made over the past easy 30 years are, you know, kind of coming due. And I agree with the Bank of England's analysis that it's probably going to be a difficult recession with unemployment because I guess I just don't see the catalyst for a recovery or a silver lining. The way that the global economy has recovered from crises for the past 20 years, basically, is by central banks cutting interest rates, signaling to everyone to be as bullish as possible, and then, you know, also fiscal stimulus. And in a period of CPI inflation, it seems that politically, it's probably going to be difficult to do fiscal stimulus and cut interest rates. So if that's how we get out of recessions, then how do we get out of this recession? I don't think we do, for a while, at least. That's that's an alarming thought. I've wondered, too, what, what will be the cap? Catalyst for turning things around. And that's why I think if we enter into a recession, it'll probably be a long one. And uh, I think if we get out of it in 2024, we'll be lucky. The other thing that has me kind of pondering where we go next and how far they can really take things is the interest payments on the $31 trillion of U.S. debt. Lynn Alden was tweeting about this tonight as well. Uh, her take is essentially, you know, this is going to take a long time to manifest, but it's going to be interesting to see where this goes because the interest payments now with the most recent Fed hike, we're getting 
to this range where the payment just on the interest alone will exceed what we spend on our Defense Department budget. And that's a pretty large number for the United States. What's the percentage on that? Quote, more than 10 percent accounts for around one third of overall discretionary spending. And the other third is now spent on interest payments. That does not sound good. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> that has to be part of the calculus, right? They, they're clearly aware of this. There has you know, they have to be looking at that 31 trillion dollars in debt and thinking if we raise the rates too high, we're just going to sink ourselves into a debt spiral. These problems we see on the horizon, they remind me of the difficulty of being a Bitcoin hodler because you can see where this is all going. But in the short term, the price is very volatile. People think you're an idiot. Sometimes they think you're a genius when the price goes up. But most of the time they think you're an idiot. And yeah, you have to kind of challenge your beliefs, but not go crazy. So I think that we see a lot of problems that are going to continue getting worse and the rest of the world is going to ignore them. And we have to not get stressed out in the process is sort of my approach. Yeah, I've been thinking about that today, actually. And, and it's like you have to kind of just think of it in terms of, OK, well, what are things I can take action on? What variables do I have any kind of input or control over and try not to stress about the ones you don't? So, I mean, for listeners who are getting depressed at this talk about economic depression and recession, I think that, you know, Bitcoin goes very well with personal budgeting because it's such a finite kind of defined thing. So if you're concerned about the financial conditions, you know, think about making a personal budget. I actually started using the Firefly app. I don't know if I would recommend it to non-technical people because it's kind of a, a chore to set up and it's like a budgeting app that you have to program to make it work. So it's perfect for me, but it might not be for everybody. But having a, a family budget is a really good thing. I think it's just a, a grown up thing to do. So I recommend everyone give that a try. And, you know, you'll feel a lot more in control of your spending and, and less stressed in general about money, in my experience. Yeah, it's a great idea. Stack sats, of course. Um, and, and really, don't stress. We're just going to pop the popcorn and be along for the ride. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from my place over there where I podcast. Come on over to my place and hang out. We have self-hosted show, Linux Unplugged, Linux Action News, Office Hours, which is really a community-focused show. And a theme that's been going on there for a while is our community-built website around Hugo, which has been really fantastic. And we just recorded a brand new self-hosted that'll be coming out this week. And find that all over at jupiterbroadcasting.com or just search for Jupiter Broadcasting or the self-hosted show in your podcast app of choice. Choice, perhaps one of those new podcast apps at newpodcastapps.com. And I just mentioned that I was self-hosting Firefly, a personal budgeting app. Pew, pew. I may have gotten the idea from the self-hosted show because I'm sure you've mentioned it before. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, I think it's Alex uses it. I, think. I should try it. I should try it. I, I really should give it a go. It's super intimidating. And then you're like, oh, wait, it just works. So in today's Bitcoin education, I was going to talk about validity rollups, which is a sometimes called ZK rollups. And it's a scaling technology that's seen a lot of development on Ethereum, but could also be applied to Bitcoin. But I'm going to pause on that because I need to read this article about three more times before I'm ready to talk about it confidently. Yeah, it is pretty thick, isn't it? So if you don't mind, why don't you tell us about this week's Bitcoin Optech? Because there was a lot in there that, that we were talking about before the show. It actually started with mempool consistency 
cryptocurrency. Uh, Anthony Towns started a discussion on the Bitcoin dev mailing list about the consequences of making it easier to configure Bitcoin's core policies for transaction relays and men pool acceptance. But when I dug through here, that's what it starts with. Oh, a bit, BIP324 is in here for message identifiers uh, and also a bit in here about the uh, lightning routing failure that as well. But there's a little bit in here too about building a, a Rust tool that will sit in front of the Bitcoin daemon and act as um, like an API front end. Not fully featured yet, but it's an example of some Rust tooling that we are seeing begin to get built around Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has a really, really rich tooling ecosystem. And I mean, that's one of the things that the Optech newsletter focuses on quite a bit is tooling around Bitcoin. And I think that's an indication of a, of a healthy community. And we're starting to see more and more Rust projects also pick up. And I'm a pretty big fan of Rust, so I like seeing that. And the Optech has a little piece in here about Rust Bitcoin, which is a library for support with serialization or deserialization, parsing and executing data structures and sending network messages related to Bitcoin. It'll it'll talk uh, the Bitcoin core. There's, that's what I took out of it that was the most exciting. Yeah, and that's a great use for Rust because Rust is a low-level language that can efficiently marshal resources. And so those actions are probably some of the more heavy operations for a Bitcoin node. The thing that's really nice in here too is uh, this is a real meat and potatoes update. I mean, there's a lot in here about Bitcoin core, about LND. This is a, this is a quintessential optech. Just to stay on the subject of Rust, I actually have an interview that I think you're going to enjoy with a Rust specialist. Oh, yeah? One thing I'll leak is his point of view is that when you start looking into the development community around cryptocurrency projects, because this person did not come to Bitcoin first, his point was that the vast majority of developers are working on Bitcoin. This is not what you hear. You hear that everybody's building on Ethereum or whatever the next Ethereum killer is. So Lunar. Yeah, you don't hear that Bitcoin development is actually where it's at. It's all of these ad hominem attacks about toxic Bitcoin fanatics not the serious development culture. But someone from the inside contradicts that view. And I'm inclined to believe because I think that to be a really good craftsperson, and I think that software developers are craftspeople, you really kind of have to believe. It's hard to spend your talents on a project you know to be worthless. And over time, through exposure to altcoins, you will come to the conclusion, if you're not completely stupid, that they are worthless. And so talent naturally moves to the place where it's it's treated the the best or the most competitively or something. Didn't Steve Jobs say A players only like playing with A players? Well, Bitcoin developers are A players. Exactly. That's exactly the point I was just about to make. And the reality is I often hear that uh, a lot of the backend code for some of these altcoins is just a hot, hot, scary mess. Um, and the I'll, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes, but they make a point here and I think you'd agree with it. I agree with it. I, I, I know that just creating an application in Rust doesn't make it perfect. It doesn't make it safe. It doesn't make it flawless necessarily, but it is a really good starting point. And they write, the uh, Rust Bitcoin library is written entirely in Rust to illustrate the benefits of strong type safety, including ownership and lifetime for financial or crypto software. Essentially, they believe that when you're looking at software, that's when you're writing software that's touching financial stuff, touching crypto stuff, it probably should be written in Rust whenever possible. And uh, I love that idea. I I'd love to see more tooling written in Rust. We're starting to see it happen in the Linux space. Linux 6.1 and 6.2 are adding Rust capabilities to the Linux kernel. And of course, we're seeing a lot of stuff in user space. And I think it's great to see it happening in the Bitcoin community too. Which brings us to feedback. Short episode this week. Pew pew. 
Remember, you can get in touch, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Consider joining our community Matrix channel provided by Jupiter Broadcasting with a Matrix client like Element. You can also get in touch with the show using a value-for-value podcasting 2.0 app such as Fountain.fm on Android, Podverse, which is cross-platform, or Castomatic on Apple Podcasts on Apple. People love them sats uh, sat streaming on Fountain, you know, where the listener gets to earn the sats. That that seems to be a popular one. I think almost the majority of our boost this week came from Fountain FM, with a few exceptions, a few notable exceptions in there. I think this first one's Barn Miner, 5,000 sats. A friend sent me the pod, gave it a listen. Good stuff. How about that? Hey, thanks so much, Barn Miner. I hope you are mining in a barn, because that would be cool. Yes, I hope so too. Let us know. And also sharing the pod is a great value for value exchange. That's very valuable. Clearly here, Barn Miner got the pod shared with them and they gave it a listen and they sent a boost in. How great is that? That's so great. So thank you everybody out there who shares the show as well. And then we got three, 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 three sats from Patar. That's a row of swans, I think, who said enjoyed. Thumbs up. Thanks. Nice to see you again, Patar. Good to hear from you. Patar is like a boosting godfather. He's He boosts into lots of shows, you know, he's... DJ boosted in with 30,000 sats. Excellent listener feedback this week. Let's boost the Bitcoin dad pod higher in the indexes. Also, let's aim for chapter markers in every episode. It was worth the wait. Thanks again. Keep up the good work. Yeah, DJ. I think you've been listening recently, but we've had chapter markers ever since the beginning or almost the beginning. I think maybe one or two episodes didn't have them, but I remember that being one of our first sort of feature improvements. Nice. Yeah, of course, could be dependent on the client DJ's using. Ah, Maybe sometimes they don't render. Like I, I sometimes would listen in Overcast and they wouldn't show up sometimes, but they always show up in Podverse and Fountain for me. And AntennaPod for me. Mm. And Apple Podcasts. Then from C-Dubs, we received 50505 sats with the message sent in four no message boosts. Oh, is that, did you write that message? That's just notes for me, yeah. Sent in four boosts with no message, but he used Boost CLI for all of them. And then he sent a fifth boost, and all it said was just last one. Wow, well, thank you so much, C-Dubs. That is a mega boost. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And with Boost CLI. That's awesome. Boost CLI is the command line lightning boosting solution. So if you want to be a elite Linux user, I'm assuming it's running on Linux. That's the way to go. Bitcoin Lizard comes in with a healthy 20,000 sats. Inspiring message from dad regarding the adversarial environment that we Bitcoiners are entering. Everyone should be working towards self-custody if they aren't there already. I was a longtime Firefox user, but I, I had to drop Mozilla due to their misguided and negative attitude towards Bitcoin. Perhaps I need to let go of my ideology on this matter and use the superior your product. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Bitcoin Lizard. I definitely support you on not being too harsh about people and institutions that are negative on Bitcoin. It's hard to get and it looks very similar to a lot of scams out there. So try to try to forgive because I think they have a pretty okay product. Yeah, I have to agree that upset me when I saw it too, Lizard, but I have the same take Dad does. It's just we're early and sometimes they're going to get it wrong. User 3021 set in 1111 sats. To row sticks. My first boost ever, giving you all my sats. Wow. Hey, thanks for all your sats. Love the show. Good balance of faith and skepticism. Keep up the great work. Thanks. We'll try. Thank you, user 3021. Um, you can go into Fountain 2 and set your profile name if you like. Baffo <laughs> boosts in with 22,000, nope, with 2,223 sats. Uh, Baffo calls that a row of ugly ducks because oh. it's not all twos, I guess. He <laughs> <laughs> kind of messed it up with that three in there, so it's ugly. Right. <laughs> Oh, and this is great because I get to take the last one. Now, 
Last week I said, feel free to boost in all of your controversial or ugly opinions, <laughs> because if you pass the threshold, we'll read it. And Steph Bot has taken me up on my challenge, who writes, in addition to the money used, the way children are treated is a huge factor in improving our civilization into the future. In the Bomb in the Brain series, Stefan Molyneux discusses the prevalence, long-term risk factors, and solutions to child abuse. Please help share this essential information. Now, I'm not going to read out a URL to share, and I'm, I'm actually not going to share this because I, I think, I mean, I'm not going to share the link because I think that Stefan Molyneux is a bad actor. But I will tell you something. This is a link to bitshoot.com. Okay. Now here's a red flag. If it's being hosted on bitshoot.com, it means it's probably too racist for YouTube. That's a hint. You can put all sorts of financial scams and bad stuff and stupid opinions on YouTube. So when YouTube kicks you off and you have to go to bitshoot, it's time to look in the mirror and be like, oh my gosh, what did I say? So, you know, I think I've been pretty clear. There's a lot of documented opinions about Stefan Molyneux being a really bad guy. And this bomb in the brain stuff about child abuse, I've heard it said that this is part of his whole thing about convincing people that their parents have mistreated them and isolating them from their parents so that he can convince them to join his online cult. That's what I've heard. And that's an opinion shared by a well-known Bitcoiner blanking on the name. He had a hedge fund that was bought by Blockstream. What was his name? Hmm. I'm horrible with names, so I can't recall. I'll forget it. I forget every name we mentioned. So <laughs> Tur Demeester. He talks about Stefan Molyneux's cult in a podcast. So I'm gonna try and find that episode to share in the notes because I think Steph Bot should give it a listen and maybe he's wrong or maybe maybe that might change Steph's mind. Thanks for the boost, Steph Bot. And also a couple we got a couple of messages of several of messages that were just boost. No, no like text in the boostgram. Totally fine. Thank you. I did want to give a couple of shout outs because 30k sats came from uh, LT guy or lit guy 05 and we got 2142 sats from M. Dulski. And there are several others in there that I, I just didn't grab, but they did come in and we saw them. Thank you, everybody who boosts. This was this is a pretty good showing this week. Um, and uh, we really appreciate that. And uh, if you'd like to boost in, newpodcastapps.com. This is definitely one of our biggest boosting episodes ever. And I think we mentioned it on a previous episode. If you could support the show and boost in, we appreciate it. And so thanks everyone for showing up. Another option, if you'd like to support the show and maybe help more people find it, is you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I don't I don't think I've ever asked people to do that before, but I think it does. I well, other podcasts say it all the time, so apparently it works for them. <laughs> yes, no, it does. It's it's a you know it's one of the largest discovery mechanisms out there for podcasts still because not only is Apple Podcasts large, but the Apple Podcast directory is also used by lots of other apps. And one last note: if you have a wad of cash and a plane ticket burning a hole in your pocket, you can join me at the Bitcoin the Adopting Bitcoin conference in November. It is November. Well, it's November yeah. 15, 16, and seventeen. It's 17. like a couple of weeks away in El Salvador. <laughs> yeah, it's in, it's in twelve days. Oh my gosh, I'm not ready. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh, I, I, I would love to go. That's going to be so neat. And if you use the code Bitcoin dad, when you grab those tickets, you'll get a 21% discount because of course it's 21. Of course. This has been the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin dad and I'm here as always with me, Chris, still updating Umbral nodes. See you next time. <laughs>